and welcome to this week's Asia Research Story. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Renee Jeffrey, Professor of International Relations um, in the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Uh, and it's my pleasure to be hosting another great Asia Research Story. Before I do, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the various lands on which we're meeting, watching and participating in this event. Um, today, I'm on the lands of the Jagara and Turrbal people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. So for those joining us live via Zoom, um, welcome. It's great that you're able to join us um, again this week. Can I please ask um, not to put your cameras on um, during the session today? Uh, we found last week that when audience members put their cameras on, um, it causes some connectivity issues, um, and it's also caused some problems with editing the recording later. Um, it would be lovely to be able to see all your faces and reactions and not to be sort of talking into the void, if you like, but I'm afraid right now we just can't make that work. So um, if you could please keep your cameras off, that would be great. Um, there will be a short Q&A session um, at the end, so please submit your questions um, using the chat function. Don't feel like you need to wait till the end of the conversation um, before sending them. Uh, it'd be really great if we had some um, you know, ready to go when the Q&A starts. Um, and for those who are listening to or watching the recording, um, I really hope that you um, enjoy the conversation. So it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, um, Dr. Luis Cabrera as this week's guest. Um, Lou is an Associate Professor in the School of Government and International Relations and a member of the Griffith Asia Institute. He has a BA in Journalism and an MFA in Creative Writing and a PhD in Political Science from the University of Washington. Um, he started out his very transcontinental global career um, at Arizona State University before moving to the University of Birmingham and joining us at Griffith in 2014. Um, Lou's a political theorist whose work focuses on world order, multilevel governance, immigration, human rights, um, Indian politics, among other things. He's the author of Political Theory of Global Justice, The Practice of Global Citizenship, and The Humble Cosmopolitan, which we're going to talk about in a bit. So welcome, Lou. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Congratulations um, on the new book. Um, always exciting to have a new book out. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a copy to show. Um, it's locked in an office on campus, and I'm not willing to breach quarantine or run the gauntlet of campus security. That's probably the more frightening thing to do um, to get a copy. We will show a screenshot um, later in the session today so people can um, have a look at, um, at what it looks like, and we'll have a bit of a chat about the cover um, also. But the book came out with Oxford University Press um, earlier in the year. People are looking for it. Um, but before we turn to the book, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your career. Um, I noticed you kind of, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a smile when I mentioned your previous degrees, your sort of, you know, study before getting into politics. So I'm really, really interested to know how you, how you made that move and how you moved from studying journalism to having an interest in politics and then ending up doing a PhD, um, in politics. Was it, was it deliberate or you know, what, what happened? I was mostly thinking, how did she find out about the creative writing degree? It did. <laughs> Probably the best two years of my life was that creative writing degree. But uh, I was a 
um, by training. So as you said, I did the undergraduate degree in journalism, and I worked for Associated Press in Seattle and Spokane, Washington, for the better part of 13 years with breaks for grad school. And it, it was a great job. It was uh, very exciting at times, very adventurous. But after a while, I felt like um, I wanted to, to know more about the ideas that drive the world, the, uh, the underlying um, causes and, and issues that were pushing the politics I was reporting on. And I also wanted to be able to uh, make a sort of a more direct intervention. Journalism is, is always so focused on, on trying to be neutral, trying to be objective. And I, I wanted to be able to at least take a stance and uh, explore the best evidence for that side. So that, uh, that sort of naturally led me to political theory. It sort of ticked all the boxes for me and uh, had a very nice experience, uh, six years worth at uh, the MA and PhD at the University of Washington. Ooh, okay. Um, that's interesting. So it sort of segues nicely into sort of the next sort of obvious question that I have. Um, in terms of the research that you do, you're a bit of an odd breed. Um, you're a political theorist. But who does like really, like really real, really gritty field work in sometimes really quite difficult places? You don't often get that combination. Um, your theory is so often just, you know, really quite abstract and so far removed from, you know, everyday, ordinary people's lives. Um, but one of the things I really, really like about your, your work and about this book, um, is it engages directly with real people's lives. The, their actual lived experiences rather than you know, an imagined understanding of what their lives might actually be like. Um, so I guess what I want to know is what inspired that sort of decision to be a theorist on one hand but to be out in the field on the other? Like why not just be a you know, straightforwardly empirical political scientist? What's, what's that combination um, doing for you? Well, the work certainly led me back to it. I think uh, the needs of the work, the needs of the, the questions I was trying to answer, and then also uh, personal proclivities. Um, but the, the first thing I would say is that uh, it, it does seem odd that a, a, um, a excuse me, a political theorist would get out in the field. Actually, there's a there's a long-standing sort of vein of political theory that we're calling grounded normative theory, which people have done going back to the early 1980s, and it's been a bit underappreciated. I would say, you know, if you look at the uh, two of the two recent texts on the methodology of political theory, and they don't mention these these kinds of methods anywhere. So I'm yeah. a group of people. One of the things we're doing is um, trying to bring that more to the forefront. Uh, but my personal journey, you know, I spent uh, after after wanting to get into the armchair, you know, wanting to get out of the streets, interviewing uh, World Trade Organization protesters and that sort of thing as an AP journalist. I wanted to get into the armchair and just pour over the uh, the good books that people were writing and, and learn some things uh, and really feel like I had a, a depth and breadth of knowledge appropriate to some of the questions that political theorists deal with. So I spent about 10 years in the armchair, if you like, and then uh, and, and produced the first book. And then as I was going through the second book, I realized very early that um, I was, it was dealing with questions of migration, unauthorized migration, national citizenship, global citizenship. And I realized I needed to get out of the chair and back into the field and start talking to people again who knew more than I did about those contexts. So I ended up uh, for the second book, Practice of Global Citizenship, interviewing more than 260 people uh, around the migration context. Everybody from, of course, unauthorized migrants um, to the people, the protesters who were trying to keep them out of America by strapping on guns and patrolling the border, that sort of thing, enforcement agents in the United States. Um, people in Mexico and many countries in Europe, uh, and just trying to get a, a real sense for 
the context before I really started to, to do what political theorists do, which is investigate what, what we might say about what could be done in that context. Hmm. So that's really interesting to think that you, know, you start off as a journalist and then you spend a lot of time looking at political theory. But do you think your earlier training um, as a journalist has actually, in the end, you know, helped you to you know, become a grounded political theorist and that you use those very skills in, you know, in doing your field work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so natural for me to get out there and just talk to people. I, I think in the in the preface of the first book, I, I said something like uh, what was drummed into me as a cub reporter was that you have to burn some shoe rubber to get the story. You could only learn so much from reading about things and even talking to people on the phone. You actually have to get out there and, and see the context. As one as one person put it to me, you have to smell the dirt. Um, you know, you have to you have to get some of the dirt on your fingers and and get a better sense of what people are experiencing in the context and, and see how they live their lives. So I don't claim that it's ethnography because I'm not a trained ethnographer who spends three months embedded with a group or something like that. And um, one of the real uh, challenges and, and really delights about this has been having to uh, sort of reconstruct myself from somebody who thinks is a journalist, you know, quick hit, get some detail and go to somebody who's more as a qualitative researcher who uh, gets the data, spends months or years collecting it, and has to very systematically go through it and see what it's telling us. And, and so I had a lot of good colleagues at Arizona State who were sociologists who helped me through that process. Yeah, and I think I think you're so right about that, the importance of being able to get a sense of a place, a sense of the context um, that you're researching, and all those incidental meetings that you end up um you, know, you end up having when you're in the field. You start interviewing one person and they introduce you to someone else and, you know, following all those different leads, just how much more you get just by, by being there. Um, so in terms of the places that you do your field work, why India? What is it about India in particular that's drawn you, particularly in recent years? Like what's the India fascination? Well, um, the work led me to it, the kind of questions I, uh, I'm trying to investigate. I won't say answer because that wouldn't be very humble at all, thinking I've got the answer, but certainly the kind of questions uh, that I'm, kind of, I'm, trying, I'm trying to contribute to better answers. And my question has always been, uh, you know, we look at our political structures and some countries have done well um, in terms of protecting their citizens. You know, it's, it's lucky to be born in some places or to be born in some families or some regions of a country. Um, you know, how do we get closer to a world in which anybody born anywhere has reasonably decent chances of being able to, to get, you know, the food they need, the healthcare, the education, that sort of thing. You know, you can think of it in terms of human rights, human needs. Um, and for me, it always comes back to um, good political institutions, democratic political institutions tend to do a lot better. So the question is, what sort of political institutions and processes and practices could help us help everyone uh, ensure that everyone has had those decent chances. And so that got me looking at regional organizations that can help facilitate state democratization, state development all around the world, uh, global organizations in the UN and elsewhere. And um, I, I turned pretty quickly to cosmopolitan political theory, which made a lot of sense to me. And one of the core presumptions of cosmopolitan theory is that everybody matters as much as everybody else. Now, that's a very common thing for people to say, um, but when you really start thinking about what it would look like in practice, how to get everybody those equally good chances, or at least decent chances, 
um, you begin to, to realize that our political structures are not very well set up to do that. You know, nation states are competitive with each other. Um, we're, they're tasked with taking care of their own people first and often last. Um, so how do we develop those better political structures? And then once we start thinking in terms of better, better political structures, the question in this book, so the question in the second book was, how can we think of ourselves as global citizens contributing to the development of these structures? And the, this most recent book, the question was, well, wait a minute. Um, how do we make sure that we, whoever we are, aren't just imposing our parochial beliefs, our, our local beliefs on the whole world or trying to saying these are human rights and everybody must um, abide by my interpretation of human rights? Cosmopolitans are often accused of doing that. So one of the big criticisms of cosmopolitanism has been that it's arrogant, uh, you know, from Kant, Immanuel Kant in the 1790s, who was, you know, considered one of the first um, cosmopolitan thinkers who really drove the ideas, the, the questions that we're thinking about today, um, had some really sort of uh, questionable ideas about racial hierarchies and those sorts of things. And, and so critics will look at that and they'll look at Kantian inspired work and they'll say, the work you're doing is just as arrogant. And so I needed to be able to answer those kinds of critiques. I, I felt like if this cosmopolitan approach is going to stand up, because I feel like they're very important critiques. And I started looking around the world for contexts that I could investigate, that I could learn about, um, that would teach me about how these sorts of issues have been navigated. And fairly early on, I discovered the National Campaign on Dalit Human Rights. So a group in India, and Dalit is um, the, the current, uh, most prevalent term, I would say, for what the people who used to be called untouchables, people at the bottom or outside of the caste hierarchies, you know, Gandhi is well known for advocating on, on their behalf in his lifetime. Um, but I, I became uh, really interested in this group because they were making human rights claims against um, what, they saw, what they said and documented were continuing injustices based in local dominant beliefs. So based in, in some people's beliefs about caste hierarchy, within Hindu religions, and about 80% of, of India is, is Hindu. And so it looked to me like a possibly very good case study. I went and spoke to them, and uh, it, it turned out to be a really good context, especially because not only were they there, but they had some good critics in the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is a Hindu nationalist political party, which has led India since 2014 and is now the largest political party in the world. It's Narendra Modi's party. It's very important indeed. So it was really an ideal context for investigating these kind of claims because they were so live. Right. Um, so look, the book's called The Humble Cosmopolitan, which is a great title. I'm very jealous. I'm absolutely useless at coming up with good titles. All my books have very, very dull titles. And I hope that one day I come up with a really good catchy one um, like this, this is definitely not a boring um, name. It's really quite, it's really quite an evocative name, and it's potentially quite a controversial name. Um, and you've kind of hinted a bit at that on Twitter in the last um, couple of weeks when you said that you know the title is an oxymoron, um, and you've given us a little bit of a sort of a hint to that already in saying that well, many sort of you know, dominant varieties of cosmopolitanism can be really quite arrogant. Um, but why, if you think about the other side of it, why might it be an oxymoron to think that a cosmopolitan could be humble? Mm. Yeah, what, what were you getting at at that? I didn't want to ask you on Twitter. I wanted to save it up for now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I will say one thing about the title. I really wish that I had called it Humble Cosmopolitans because it makes it seem like there's only one 
or, you know, there's only one way of being a humble cosmopolitan, which is not what I intended at all. So I, I, I try to explain in the preface that, uh, you know, there are many and, and there are many ways of being and many agents of cosmopolitan humility. But you're right. I mean, that was the big challenge. How can you both be a cosmopolitan who thinks that everyone in the world should have certain things, certain opportunities, should have certain rights protected, um, you know, within broad interpretations of rights? How can you do that and still say you're being appropriately sensitive to local difference? Um, that's, that's the big challenge I think we all face. Any defender of universal human rights, but especially when you start talking about cosmopolitan institutions. So not only should we have some shared principles globally and regionally, but we should have shared institutions and they should be democratic institutions. So, you know, only about 120 countries in the world are democracies. Am I just telling the other 80 countries, hey, you've got it wrong. Uh, this is the right way. Let's go over here. So that would be very arrogant indeed. And I think these are very important questions. So it is a seeming oxymoron. How can you be uh, both a cosmopolitan and be humble at the same time? Um, it's like calling yourself uh, the most humble, arrogant person ever. Um, and this was the big challenge of the book. And, and what I did was dig into the um, so, uh, philosophical literature, but especially the psychological literature on humility and how people are conceptualizing it these days. And I, and I realized very quickly that humility has moved on from what might be considered the sort of classical Christian ethos that um, you know uh, Thomas Aquinas and people like that were talking about, and that Nietzsche and some of the um, the high modern political theorists had really criticized as being the wrong way to think about things. But humility for the philosophers and especially for the psychologists is actually what they would call pro-social pro-social behavior. So intellectual humility is the opposite of arrogance. Um, not thinking that you know it all, not thinking that other people don't have anything to tell you. Um, extending humility or extending recognition to others as equals is part of humility, um, which is distinct from modesty, which is sort of observing social norms for the most part. But humility would be acknowledging, I don't know everything, acknowledging um, you're just as worthy as I am, both in uh, human terms, but also political terms. That's where you lead to democracy. And also acknowledging that uh, everyone has the right to give input and challenge. Um, and so I started thinking about this way of, of conceptualizing humility. And as I was doing so, I was digging more and more into the work of B.R. Ambedkar, Dr. Ambedkar, the, the architect of the Indian Constitution and probably the greatest um, champion of anti-caste politics. He was a Dalit himself, and he was certainly the most prominent um, supporter of Dalits, uh, who, who was a Dalit in, um, in India in the first half of the 20th century. And his legacy is everywhere. For me, he became so crucial to this book. And, um, and I could say more about that if that's. Yeah, look, it might be a good time, um, to have a look, um, at the cover of the book. We've got a mm. screenshot that we can, um, share with everybody, um, to see, you know, what the cover, um, looks like, which I, again, really like the cover. I think book covers mm. are, are really interesting and a really sort of important, um, an important part of the process of, you know, putting together your work and sort of selling your work, um, if you like. And so the cover image is of a placard, um, with the face of Ambedkar on it. And it's been used by a demonstrator, isn't it? To shield themselves from water cannon spray. And it's a really, it's a really great image. Um, it's so amazingly appropriate for the book. I mean, it's almost like it was the stage. So where did you find it? Like, um, did you just it, it crawl through? Yeah. 
So do we have a share? Are we able to share it? Sure what's happening with the share screen. Okay. Uh, Hopefully we may not be able to get that up in a bit. But if anybody, um, if you want to Google it, it'll come right up. Um, so it shows. Um, okay. Here we go. There it is. There it is. Excellent. Here it is. Um, the humble cosmopolitan rights, diversity, and transgender democracy. And that, of course, is a picture of Dr. Ambedkar. That's a very famous picture, and it's one that you will see hanging in people's households, especially uh, Dalit people's households. And you know, if you if you walk down the streets, and many shops will have Dr. Ambedkar's picture, uh, just like that. And uh, you know, all the activist groups will have his picture hung on the wall. And that's actually how I was introduced to Dr. Ambedkar. I'm actually really embarrassed now to say that um, in all of my studies, I had never come across his work before until I started looking specifically at India. And now I think that's it's an incredible um, gap. In, uh, in my education, and, and I think it's one that's going to be filled for a lot of people now because he's becoming much more widely read and widely discovered. But this is a protest. A Dalit PhD student at a university had been harassed. There were some tensions with other students, especially some in the youth wing of the, um, the Bharatiya Janata Party, the youth wing connected to the party. And um, he had been really pressured until he felt like he had to take his own life. And it was, uh, there were a lot of protests about that. A lot of people felt like it, it just sort of revealed, um, how people in the, perceived in the lower caste. So he was either Dalit or he was a lower caste person. Um, they did some back and forth on that. But certainly a lot of people said this is, uh, just another example of these injustices that we've been talking about. And a lot of people got out in the streets just like these young people did. And they're so, they're, they're sort of tipping back a police barricade. And it's a little hard to see, but there, there's water cannon sprayed down on him. And that's why he's holding up Dr. Ambedkar as a shield. And that appeared in a, um, a leading Indian newspaper. And it was actually a very famous photo. And I saw that and I flipped it out and I said, this has to be the book cover, you know, whatever, uh, whatever happens. And uh, my, um, my uh, PhD student at the time, who later became a, an incredibly valuable uh, research collaborator and coordinator, Chandrachur Singh was able to track it down for me and get the photographer connected with the press. Um, so yeah. I, I could speak a little bit about Dr. Ambedkar's influence, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because you know, it really, you know, his his work, his ideas really sit at the centre um, of your book. And you know, I'm really interested to know. You hinted a little bit already at the, at the fact that you went on this journey from having not even known who he was to him being just such a hugely influential part um, of, of your thinking. Um, so I guess what I'm interested in is how did, how did, that, how did that unfold um, and how did his ideas come to inform your thinking about cosmopolitanism? Mm. Like what, what's his influence really been on you? Well, I'll start with the last question first. And I think, A, um, he was just such an incredibly um, robust political thinker and legal thinker. So. Uh, his ideas have, um, for various reasons, not been very well known in the West, um, you know, outside of India, but I think increasingly they are. Increasingly they're studied in Indian universities. But for me, um, the reason he became so important was because his aims were so constant with the aims that I had. So, um, A, he was pushing, he was drawing on uh, principles of universal human rights to argue for um, equal political and social recognition within a society where it often wasn't extended to Dalits, to lower caste persons. 
where often we're told, well, you're not social equals, you know, our, our, our social principles, our dominant mores, the way we, the way we do things around here uh, tells us that, and you should know your own place. And he resisted that. He pushed back against that very hard with a lot of other people, of course. Um, and the arguments that he made in pushing back against that were so instructive to me. So how could, because he was challenged as somebody using these universal principles of human rights that had been out there and they were perceived, especially in, in um, India and other post-colonial countries or, or soon to be post-colonial as, you know, things the West had imposed on them. So he had to make those arguments about, no, actually these ideas are available for anyone. And these are the right ideas because they um, they spring from a place of recognition of human equality. And so, you know, he has this sophisticated argument that really anticipates some current arguments that, that uh, I don't think people have read him. But this idea of the fiction of equality, he says, you know, everybody's going to be physically unequal. Some people are smarter than others, etc. But for these several reasons, we need to, as a society, observe the fiction of equality. Um, we need to presume that everybody's equally worthy and to construct our political institutions in that way. And if you look at the Constitution that, uh, you know, whose drafting he led, it's got his imprint all over it. And the Constitution was the very instructive, the Indian Constitution of 1950, which leads with universal human rights um, and, and the things that flow from it, was very instructive to me because he was criticized for not make, by some Hindu nationalists at the time for not making it a quote-unquote Hindu constitution. You know, it was said in one of the leading uh, Hindu nationalist newspapers, there's nothing Bharatiya about it. There's nothing sort of Hindu slash India about it. It's it's imported from other places. And he had to address those kinds of criticisms and say, no, we take the best ideas from everywhere, and it's not just something from the United States. It's from all over the place. And here are the reasons it's appropriate to do that. So that was one thing. And then he also taught me how to think about humility. And um, how to how to incorporate a commitment to political humility, to that equal political recognition, into democratic structures. So not only um, you know making it possible for people to give input, but to lodge challenges in courts, to have those avenues of appeal, and to create a system that would be oriented to promoting this form of political humility. And the overarching claim of the book is that he also gives us insight in how to create regional and ultimately more global institutions that would also reflect an orientation of political humility instead of political arrogance, where the state can simply um, have someone, you know, make a rights claim and say, we don't have to listen to it, we're a sovereign state, whether it be somebody in their own population, a refugee trying to get in, or a United Nations human rights body saying, um, you've got a problem here, and you need to address this. And, you know, the state can simply say, no, we're a sovereign state, not going to listen. Yeah, and so that's really, really interesting, that idea that, that you're not just looking at sort of the humility, arrogance sort of tension um, at one level, but this also applies sort of much more broadly, um, you know, including to structures like states um, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's really, really fascinating. We are heading towards um, being out of time. I wanted to just, before we move to questions, ask you quickly, um, what's next? This seems to have been... A Quite a momentous journey to have been on in this book. You uh, have you know, really, really sort of you know, developed your thinking in such like massive ways um, in this process of, of writing it. So, how, how do you how do you see the next big project? Where, where are you going to go next? 
Well, it's underway. And um, so what I what I hint at the end of the book is that the big gap that's left now in my investigation of this one single question, you know, what, what kind of political structures can we can we uh, develop to better ensure that people can lead decent lives is feasibility. So how would we actually get there? And actually, the question is more like, how have millions of people already tried to create structures that could get us farther there? So I uh, spent la uh, a month last year in Uruguay, which might seem an obscure place, but it's actually where the uh, common market of the South is headquartered, the, uh, the sort of uh, South American equivalent of the European Union. So it in includes um, five of the biggest countries and several others as associate members. And I was asking people there, you know, how do you try to promote regional development? Regional democracy, regional citizenship, and um, was getting you know I got a lot of insight this year before the pandemic. I was scheduled to spend a month or six weeks really going around and doing the same with ASEAN. So I've made a few trips um, around uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations uh, headquarters and lots of meetings and things like that, and done some preliminary interviews. And I need to to do a, a good structured trip on that and, and talk to a lot of people about how ASEAN is trying to do some of the same things in terms of democratization or halting um, development, et cetera. And then I would, I would love to also go to the African Union, do the same thing, and then round it out by looking at what the United Nations is doing to get a real sense of how um, we as a species, as, a, as a, a, a set of beings, have been trying to develop institutions that could do a little better than just a, a naked sovereign state system and how we, what the possibilities are for developing them even further. Uh, so that's the next big project. Wow, just a small one. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we've got some questions here. Um, thanks everybody for sending them in. If you've got any others, please um, add them to the list. So there's a couple of questions here that are about journalism. So I might sort of ask you those together. So um, Mark Beeson is asking, is good journalism a better way of changing the world than academic output that few people actually read? Um, and then the next question was, do, do you feel there is a mismatch between journalism and careful qualitative research? So these, I think, are asking similar questions, you know, different questions about a very similar set of issues there. But, you know, is this... Is academic work um, a good way of pursuing um, an activist agenda, if you like, or, or some sort of you know, moral or ethical agenda, um, or are there other ways that might be better at doing it? What are the pros and cons there? Well, let me, let me thank Professor Beeson for his question, and let me say that uh, I, have been, I am a subscriber to the Mark Beeson model of academic engagement, and that, it, and, and that is this model. So you do your best to write the best books and articles that you possibly can for an academic audience, and then take the ideas that are transferable, um, you know, the, the ideas that can be, you know, what you think are your strongest ideas, and you write for the conversation. You write for open democracy. You try to get something in the New York Times, uh, you know, opinion page as, a, as an op-ed. And, um, and you use Twitter and you use all those social media feeds that are available to us these days. And you try to promote these kinds of ideas. So I think uh, for me, um, the, uh, the best sort of uh, public engagement begins on that foundation of the best academic work I can do. And I think Mark is a real model of that kind of thing. Because he not only writes 80 articles a year, he, uh, he publishes quite a lot. Um, as to the differences between uh, quality journalism and qualitative research, I would say yes, indeed. I mean, if you look at... Um, 
the, uh, the, the sort of the really rigorous qualitative research that especially, say, sociologists do um, and some ethnographers. I mean, they, you know, they, uh, they run the data and, and a lot of them are, I mean, they, they just have massive uh, bases of uh, empirical data on which to draw interviews and all these observations and everything else. I will say some of the best newspapers have started to adopt that model. So I will see, you know, I've, I've been cognizant of um, articles on something the Trump administration is doing. And the New York Times or the Washington Post will say, you know, 60 people were interviewed for this article. And once, you, you know, if you've got the resources to send a team of 10 reporters out there, each interviewing all those people and bringing back their notes, it begins to look like really quality, uh, qualitative research. Um, so another question is, this is something that intrigues me and that I was thinking about as I was reading the book. So um, again, from Mark, Mark writes that some values are unambiguously better than others. So female emancipation, um, for example, what's wrong with pointing out that, um, pointing that out and telling people who otherwise think um, that, that they're wrong? Um, and so one of the things that I had you know, thought um to ask you is about this idea of you know what the limits of humility are. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we deal with morally repugnant or abhorrent views? So you know, mm-hmm. how open and accepting do we need to be? And and are we suggesting um, by being sort of open to them and modest about our own judgments that somehow we need to take repugnant views into account when we're making judgments or we're entering into deliberations about things? Is there a limit to this? How I would, I would say, based on you know, I learned so much about um, about uh, political humility and 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 ways of doing politics in this. And so there are two vices, political vices, that people talk about. Especially this guy Mark Button, who's a very good political theorist, wrote a book called Political Vices. And the two ones that really stood out for me were arrogance, which is rejecting input, and then recalcitrance which is sort of allowing people to have to say their little piece and then ignoring it and just doing what you want to do anyway. And those are, those are rampant. Another vice that's, um, that's attendant to democracy, especially. So if you say, yes, everyone's equal, everyone gets a chance to give input and give challenge. Um, then I think you have to tip the balance toward that open input. Now, um, some things are hate speech. Some things are vile, um, but I think if we're going to be consistent in um, encouraging input and encouraging, you know, challenge that most things should be given a hearing. And, and I think, uh, you know, to say exactly where you draw the line, um, you know, is very, very difficult. Uh, it, it does need to be drawn, but, but I would tip to most things should be given a hearing but they should also be vigorously challenged. So when somebody says, you know, I think all X type people are uh, inferior by nature. And, you know, so 80 people should jump on them in the dialogue and say, no, no, no. How can you say that? You know, now how much space do you give to those people? Well, after a while, you know, hopefully bad ideas don't make their way into legislation so much. anymore. Um, but I think it's, it's part of the democratic process that you, you give a lot of weight to free and open exchange, even if the ideas do seem repugnant, um, because um, I, I think we have to, if we're, if we're to be consistent. Because if, if you start to say who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak, then you run into some problems. And, and one last caveat I'll add is that every political system deals with this. So it's not just a cos- something that attends to cosmopolitanism. 
we've got to solve it at the uh, at the domestic level, at the state level, at a city council meeting. You know, if you've ever covered one of those as a reporter, you know that people say crazy things and, and really offensive things sometimes. Um, and uh, you know, when do you when do you tell them to shut up? It's uh, this is part of democratic politics. So it's a good question and a hard answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this might be a really good one um, to finish on. Juliet is asking you. Um, how would you describe a cosmopolitan citizen? And she says, you know, she remembers asking migrants about their views towards cosmopolitan citizenship um, when she was, you know, doing much of her work um, and that many of them were uncomfortable about it. So mm -hmm. what do you see as a cosmopolitan citizen? And I guess how does that marry with, you know, with what ordinary sort of people, um, mm -hmm. you know, think about this? Uh, this came up when I was, when I was interviewing uh, people on the move, so migrants, um, and people who had settled uh, in uh, in other countries as, as unauthorized migrants. And um, most people don't want to put a label on themselves, say, I'm a cosmopolitan, because they may not want everything that comes with that. Um, but I, I did find consistently that people would say, I feel like I, I have a need to take care of my family. I can't do it very well. Um, you know, somebody got sick, I couldn't pay the bills. I, I couldn't get them the care they needed. Uh, where I was, I couldn't do it very well. I think I have the right to move to where I can do that. You know, there's a job for me here. They're willing to pay me. I can take the money, send it back home. And so people do, I think, instinctively speak in terms of rights that they have as human beings. And um, from that, I think we can extrapolate these sort of theoretical underpinnings. One thing I will say is um, I, I did find, I did come across many humble cosmopolitans uh, in the field research. And uh, there were a number of them in the uh, National Campaign on Valid Human Rights. One who really stood out to me for the, the things he was saying was a gentleman named Paul DeBacher. And he was the co-convener, sort of the co-chair of the campaign uh, for a while and was uh, one of the lead people on their, their international outreach. So going to Geneva to speak to the United Nations and, and New York and other places. And one of the things he said in response to the really stringent criticism that the group was getting from JP officials who were, then in, who were in power not long before, and, and also from some, you know, a couple of best-selling books, one called Breaking India, um, you know, accusing them of trying to break up India, being part of those forces, uh, working against India as a Hindu nation, as a cohesive nation. And, and what he said was, you know, they want to create us as ghosts, as specters, as phantoms trying to hurt the country when all we're asking for is justice, when all we're asking for is democracy. And he said directly to me, when you're writing about us, you must show us as people from the soil. Um, we are people who have uh, worked the land and worked in our communities to build them up. Um, to we want to be uh, we want to build them up as equals. Um, we want to help India develop and realize its potential, um, not hurt India. You know we are so. For me, that really um, exemplified what I would think of as a humble cosmopolitan approach. Uh, you you try you develop your community from as local to as, as national as you can. Uh, you try to obtain justice. When you can't, you say, you know what? We've got to go to the next level and see if we can get some pressure, see if we can find deal somewhere else. We can give input and challenge because our own country is really not listening to us, our own government. And to me, that exemplified what humble cosmopolitanism could be. Right. Well, what a, a fantastic sort of summary, um, if you like, um, to to end on. Thank you so much um, for your time, um, the opportunity to discuss your book. Um, I am absolutely sure that it's going to do very, very well, um, that everyone's going to be 
buying it and citing it and that this is a really important intervention um, in the cosmopolitan theory. So, um, yeah, congratulations on the book. Um, again, thank you for joining me to talk about it today. It's been really, really fascinating. Um, next week I'm going to be talking to Tess Newton-Kane um, about the Pacific. So I hope that everybody who's joining um, online is able to join us um, again for that conversation. Um, there are a few more questions that were um, posed in the chat section. Um, I have saved them um, and I will pass them on to Lou. Um, and if he would like to um, engage with people, then um, then he'll have the time to do that um, at some point. So thanks very much for all the really, really interesting questions. And I'll see you all Thank next you. week. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Renee. Bye.